0: morning we're talking about singleness and i think there's some misconceptions on both sides of the singleness fence i mean the sides are you're single you're not and i think sometimes the singles view it as more of a scourge than sometimes and it really is and i think the marrieds do not appreciate the difficulty of singleness and so what i want to do today is i want to kind of refocus this image through the lens of the scripture. For the marriage, I think sometimes we think, well, I was single once. I did that before. I've been there. But think about, you ever catch yourself watching your kids, you're married and have kids, you watch your kids, and um, you look at your spouse and go, what did we do before we had kids? I mean, they just just occupy every free molecule of space and time. Surely we did something, but we got some pictures somewhere, I guess, but I don't know. Or maybe, you know, kids yet, and you think, well, I know I did things before I was married. I still remember. And that's part of it. The marriage, we just don't remember what singleness was really like. So this morning, I want to remind, remind the marrieds of the grace needed. And remind the singles of the grace available. Now, one thing we haven't done in a while in our home is play hide and seek. We'll probably do it this afternoon, now that I'm talking about it. But uh, hide and seek, how it works in our house is, um, when it's my turn to hide, I don't really hide behind a chair. I mean, there's not too many chairs that can hide me at this point in life. Um, most of my hiding is done under... Under a blanket. Yeah, a blanket behind a chair. And here's what usually happens in these hide-and-seek games. Either I'll get found right away, which I'm pretty grateful for, because I'm usually contorted in some kind of hiding <laughs> situation, or they'll uh, forget about me. <laughs> oh, they get distracted with something else, or they'll get called to do something else. And so when those times happen, I'm hiding under the thing. I keep thinking, I oh, hope they come get me right now. Because what happens when you're under the blanket hiding you just kind of breathe in and out the same air and it gets hotter <laughs> gets stuffier you get a little drowsy and so yeah you know pick up the cover a little bit like, come on. and a draught of crisp cool air comes in you think oh, I really was suffocating this is tremendous air out here and Put it back down to come by. Sometimes I think singles who long for a covenant relationship, that they limit their perspective with this kind of blanket. And they just breathe in and out the misery of their situation. And they need some fresh air. I think marriage do the same thing. Like marriages limit their perspective of the point of life. And they make finding a mate for their single friend or daughter or grandson preeminent in life. And they just breathe in and out this ambition. I mean it doesn't happen in this church. But you know, the context where it's Thanksgiving. And the uh, young promising one is there. All the family's gathered. There's little grandma. So tell me what's new in your life, honey? Well, this, this, and that, and work, and this, that, and that with some school stuff, and oh, it's our thing, very exciting thing, and oh, that's delightful, It's just crazy. Anyone special in your life right now? <laughs> no. And I just hope it just ends right there. And some emergency happens in the kitchen and Grandma's needed. And so there's a silence. And Grandma says, I don't know why you haven't found anybody yet. (laughs) And they just want to die. You're so charming and beautiful and smart and there's so much to offer. And every compliment is just another pound down. Grandma, let it go. Please. Like Sometimes in marriage we do this. We l- pull a blanket of limited perspective over us. So today we're going to unblur these images. How, how I want to do this is I want to offer you four fresh breaths of air. This whole series is grounded in Genesis one 26-27. Let's read this again this morning. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this doesn't necessarily assume marriage. I always use this text when I'm performing at marriage. Where's singleness in this text? Well, it's just not there. Because there's two people so far. Singleness comes up later. And so today we'll, we'll move from this text and we'll use the rest of Scripture to inform us. But it's just not there at this point. God's not ready yet for any single people. If so, there won't be anyone else to come. Breath one, here it is. Marriage is not the end goal for any human. And in fact, in that Genesis passage, the text talks about the distinction of male and female. The main issue there is obedience. The main issue is is their obedience to God. That main issue is not marriage, obedience from their distinct creative roles. Mark 12:25. Jesus is answering some attacks, really, by the Jewish elite. 12.25, the Sadducees are asking him about marriage and they don't believe in the resurrection. And so he comes to them and says, look, is this not the reason you're wrong about the resurrection? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. It's not clear what things will be like in the life to come, in the world to come. Oh, we have hope there's going to be one. You can have great hope that if you are, are submitted to Christ, made alive in Him, you will be part of it. But we don't know precisely what it would be like, specifically with marriage. We know it won't be just like this. Marriage is not the goal of life here on earth. And when we make it so, we reinterpret eternity. When we make it so, we adjust the words around here in Mark twelve. We don't know what it would be like. But it won't be just like this. And when we make marriage the end all be all, we start veering from God's design. John Piper, Wayne Grudem, they write that when talking about how we'll relate to one another, love in the age to come, it's like music that's transposed into a key above and beyond the melody of marriage in this life. It won't be worse. In fact, it'll be so different because it'll be so better that words still just fail to describe it. So what is the point? Let's look at two texts, John 17 and Romans 8. John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He prays this in preparation for His departure. Verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know the point of this whole thing is for you to get to know God? For you to know Him? And sometimes knowing Him can't completely be done in the bliss of a perfectly worked out life. There's some things, maybe many things, that are known in misery, in struggle, in trial. In mean, fact, it's what God says through James, that it's these trials that prove to you your faith is real. Likewise in Romans 8, this is a text, if you've been around a church for very long, you have heard it several times, you may know it well, maybe may have memorized it. Romans 8 and fol- 28 and following it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Because those He foreknew, He also predestined, this is their destiny, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God doing with singleness? Conforming people to the image of Christ. The end-all be-all of life is not marriage, it's Christ-likeness. He's not working for your happiness, he's working for your holiness. And when we start shifting those two around, we become very disappointed very soon. When we think, our happiness is God's aim. It's not. But when we see that holiness is just objective. That's fresh air to a painful situation. See so the problem with singleness is, it's not that people are single. It's in fact, not even that they want to be married. It's not even that people want them to be married. It's not even that people might be trying to find someone for them to marry. That's not even a problem. The problem is we all want it too much. The problem is marriage quickly rises to idle status. Where we give it attention and affection and devotion. And we start leveraging this to get what we want. Comfort. Pleasure. Security. Acceptance. the problem with marriage, the problem with singleness is when it becomes too important. Fresh breath number two. Jesus, the most fully human person who ever lived, was not married. I've ever been to a wax museum. They're kind of creepy. Not, you know, go if you want. They're usually overpriced. Um... But wax museum is, you know, they take someone who has some fame and they choose one vignette of their life and they pose them in that position. And so let's say, you know, you're an entrepreneur and you're going to create a wax museum and you're going to have some wax museum of Jesus. And you won't think you're violating Ten Commandments and so you wax of Jesus. and What scene would you pick? What little vignette or snapshot would you pick? The gospel writers, they had to pick some. We know, John says, that we did not write down everything. It's too much. We, we picked selected vignettes for a purpose. Which one or two? I'll even give you three. What would you pick? A healing? Mount Transfiguration? A pretty impressive one. Calm in the sea? What about when he was just resting from a long day? What about when he was apprehensive about ministry? What about when he tripped over a crack? What about when he got a cold? You might go on and on. I think you might get more and more bristly. Because I think what happens is we become so convinced of the deity of Jesus that we really minimize his humanity. So much so, that sometimes we can't follow him in any meaningful way. We just write it off as an excuse. Well, it's Jesus. We tend to see him as divine. And so therefore, Excused from my suffering, excused really from my plight in life. You see, those who knew Jesus best, those who interacted with him day to day, they were convinced of his humanity. None of the gospel writers are trying to convince people of his humanity. They're trying to convince them of his deity. Let's look at two quick texts: John 10, 31. John 10.31, the the Jews are ready to attack him because in their sight, he's committed blasphemy. He's equated himself with, with God, with Yahweh. And so the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, they're convinced of it, made Yourself, God. He was human. At the incarnation, God became the God-man. Forever. Revelation talks about the lamb who was slain. Jesus forever will have some kind of human body. The incarnation was not just him coming as a baby so he could take care of business. He forever entered your context. Forever to be the liaison between you and God the Father. Perfectly representing both. He's 100% human. He's 100% man. And when we minimize this human side, there's no hope for singleness. Or marriage. Or jobs. Or all the rest of life. Because Jesus didn't real, really live a real life like me. See, most Christians are convinced that Jesus held an advantage over us. And in incarnation, he set aside his God powers. He didn't cheat. The reason why he's able to sacrifice himself on your part is because he lives a life that you were supposed to live with your limitations. He did it. The reason why your life can his life can count for yours? Because he lived with your limitations. Did he do miracles? Absolutely. How? The empowerment of God. Do you have access to that? Well, Peter thinks so. In fact, Christ's miracles, none of them are unique to him. Healings, other people healed. Resurrections, well, they didn't themselves resurrect, but other people. Paul raised somebody from the dead? Exorcisms, all the ones? I'm not saying he's not unique. I'm just saying he is human. He lived with the same access to the spiritual power that you and I had. He laid aside his God powers. Look at this in John, 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 6 and following. Well, back up to verse 1. My little children, I write these things to you. may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus Christ the righteous is now the the one who fulfills the pronouns of the rest of this passage. So jump down to the end of verse 5. By this we may be sure that we are in Him, Jesus Christ the righteous, for whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk the same way in which He walked. You have no hope of doing that. And John holds out failure for you unless Jesus was a man. The man God. How did he walk? He walked completely dependent, he walked completely obedient see, I think there's this thought among singles that, look, the intimacy of marriage will never be mine. I fear that I will not become a whole person because of it. Hear the words of our single Lord. A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. See, sexual intimacy is not the end all of our life. I know our culture claims otherwise but Jesus never knew it and he is whole breathe this breath that the most complete person who ever lived Jesus was single breath 3 the bible celebrates the opportunity of singleness from the first corinthians first corinthians 7 So Paul's writing to those who have questions about singleness. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man, the single one, is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. It's just that simple in Paul's mind. For those who are married, interests are divided. I have a guy in my church who, uh, this is probably going on 12 years now. He's a very caring, giving, serving guy. Um, Does enough serving stuff to get recognized every year as, you be a good deacon. You're doing half the stuff anyway. Why don't you just, you know, be a deacon? And it may change one of these years, but he's got a bunch of kids at home. He says, you know what? I'll still do what I can, but I'm not going to take on the title because I've really got to stay home with these kids. And there's some deacon stuff I just can't commit to time wise. Not that I don't want to. He would never say it this way, but his interests are divided. He can't fully devote himself to all the work of the Lord. In fact, his new job from the Lord begins, becomes fathering these children. And so it's not that he's doing nothing, he just, he just can't do everything. Continue on the passage. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. So I say this for your own benefit, not to lay down any restraint upon you. It's not a request or a law, but to provide good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Some translations say unhindered devotion. This is the opportunity from singleness that the Bible celebrates, that it's probably a conversation I have probably once a month with a student. And it usually goes like this. Oh, what's wrong? I'm just really lonely. All my friends are pairing up, and I don't know. How come there's no one for me? Who wants to handle that? I will tell me what's going on. Well, here's my school schedule, okay. What's, here's my work schedule, okay. Here's what I'm doing ministry-wise, all right. How are you going to add a guy to this? Well, I, think, you know, I just every now and then it would be nice to have someone to be with. And, um, now listen, let's talk about the best case scenario. Best case scenario, um, this is going to be new and exciting and you're going to think about him and you're going to, want to do little things for him and just spend time together. And that will take some time and maybe you could squeeze that in, maybe. Maybe you sleep a little bit less each day. Let's say things don't go so rosy. And hello, you're both sinners, so they won't. Now let's just take a fight on the phone. Have a fight on the phone, and so you have time for the fight, which always takes a lot longer than a normal conversation, because finally, you are you mad? I'm not really mad. And you just go on and on and back and forth, and that hangs up. And then you've got to talk to your roommate about the fight, and that goes on for a while. And then you've got to post on your blog about it, and then you've got to think about it. And all there's stuff you're supposed to do that doesn't get done. So maybe you need some more margin. And they always feel like, oh, yeah, I'm not ready for this. I need I to get some other things done first. It's opportunity. Hear the words of, a, of one missionary who's single in Kenya. Being single has meant that I'm free to take risks. Risks that I might not take or I'm a mother of a family or dependent on me. Uh, being single has given me freedom to move around the world without having to pick up a household first. This freedom has brought me moments that I would not trade for anything. There's tremendous opportunity in singleness. It doesn't have to be eternal, but it's opportunity that's squandered when we just sit under the blanket and breathe it in and out of its misery instead of getting out from under this thing and using the opportunity. One more breath. And this one I I hope is more than just a peek of the blanket. I, I hope it really rips the whole thing off. Here it is. Breath four. The God is sovereign and He loves you. And you may think, do we really need to be told this? I mean, we've got little songs. We teach the kids down the hall about this. Don't we have this one? Bear with me. I'm not sure we, we have it as well as we think. Last text of the day, John 19. In John 19, Jesus has been tried and found guilty and been crucified and he's died and everyone is scattered and and now it's joseph and nicodemus and they work their connections and joseph of arimathea secures the body of jesus goes and asks Pilate for it and and uh Nicodemus goes and gets the materials for proper Jewish burial, the spices and linen cloth. And we meet them in verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so here they are. They found a tomb that's close by. And we find that it belonged to Joseph. It's probably yards away. And the, the sun is setting, so they've got to get this done before... Um, the, the Sabbath which comes, and so they've got them there, and they have their servants with them, and, and they're packing in these pounds of spices, and they're packing it in the wounds, wrapping it, and they're mounting it together, and everyone's departed. All the disciples are gone. It's just them. All of their hopes. I mean, these are two guys who were part of the elite, but they were secret disciples of Jesus, all of their hope lies before them limp. I mean, is there a lower moment in the Gospels? Now, they don't know what's about to happen. None of the category for this. They're still locked into that the Messiah will be this political leader from God who will free them of Roman oppression and restore the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon. They don't know what's about to happen in hours' time. I mean, don't you know that they might wrap the hand and and remember when this hand touched somebody and healed them. Or when this hand touched them and encouraged them. I mean, maybe they wrap in the neck and the, and they see the mouth of the the words that came from him that confounded the leaders. The great Hope to the peoples. But I mean, don't you think in their hearts, maybe in their mouths, they would say, why? God, have you forgotten us? Do you not love us that you would let this happen? See, I think we forget the significance of the death of Christ. And we think the same way we think, God, do you love me? I have in mind a girl who maybe in her mid-30s, and she has several sisters, and her sisters have all finally gotten married, and some are beginning families of their own, and the most recent family gathering, one of the sisters announces, guess what everyone, I'm pregnant. And so on the outside, she celebrates and hugs, and on the inside, just pain. And when she leaves to drive home, the pain is unleashes and the tears flow. God, have you forgotten me? Do you not love me? Well, it's clear you love my sisters. But what about me? Think of a mom, maybe in her 40s, who's been blessed with children and a family and has worked double diligence in raising them. But over the years, somehow the marriage has become more of a partnership. It's become more about convenience. And it finally pitters out. And there's sin involved. But the end result is divorce. And she finds herself single again. Don't you know that the heart that says, God, do you not love me? have you forgotten me? I think of a a guy who's just retired and uh, he's lived his life right. He has saved more than he spent. Everything in moderation. Taking care of his health. He's raised his kids. He's built some of a nest egg and now it's time to enjoy it with his wife. They're ready to travel and see their grandkids and invest their time in the ministry of the Lord. But a routine doctor's visit uh, turns up a prognosis is cancer. And it's quick. And his wife goes to be with the Lord quickly and he finds himself single again. God, why now? have got all this time to give and we have now the resources to do it. Why would you take her now? Why am I single now? Have you forgotten about me? Do you not love me? My own journey, uh, some of you know I'm, I'm pursuing some doctoral studies and I've been at it for a while. And a few weeks ago we got some news or I got some news that things might get delayed under six months. And that's not maybe that big a deal in the grand scheme of things, but we've been at this for four years and uh, just six more months of it. I mean, it's kind of a constant burden and sometimes I don't feel like I'm a whole dad or a whole husband. Is this even worth continuing this thing? I mean, it could get delayed six more years after that. And you know that I've asked the question, God, have you forgotten about me? Guys in my cohort, they've they're done now. Do you not love me? Those first days, what enabled me to sleep at night was remembering breath forth. God is sovereign and He loves you. I know this because He died for you. What helped me sleep is, God, you love me. My proof is you died for me. Oh, you died to bring yourself glory. No question. You died to make much of yourself by saving me. But I was involved. So, does God love you? Yes, absolutely. He died for you. Body whipped, feet and hands nailed, suffocated, that God could save you, that God could make His glory known through saving you. You see, the death of Christ is the highest expression of His love. And with it, he shouts to lonely, blanket-covered hearts that I love you. Hearts need to hear and be refreshed and renewed by this. None of us knows how singleness will turn out. Marry or not marry. But God is sovereign over marriage. And he is for your good. And he loves you. Pray with me. Lord, may today you grace us. To be freed from our blurred. Our distorted. Image of singleness. May you rip from our heads the blankets of our limited perspective. And may you refresh our hearts with the truth of your sovereignty. And of your goodness. Lord, today, may you give marrieds hope and grace to give the singles, and may you give singles an abundant mercy to see that life is still complete. Amen.